All right. Psalm chapter 20 and chapter 21, a journey through the Psalms. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump right in, all right? Father, we love you, and we thank you for the way, Lord, that you love us. And you do love us, and it's amazing, Lord, that you love us with a perfect, unconditional, unfailing love. As I read this morning in my quiet time, Lord, in Psalm 136, your loving kindness endures forever. In that psalm, it says it over and over again. Your loving kindness endures forever. God, help us to remember uh, that your love, as it says in the psalms, your love is better than life. We're grateful that you love us. And we're grateful, Lord, that you proved your love for us when you sent your son Jesus to come to this earth and die on the cross for our sins. And, Lord, our response to your love is to love you. Lord, to worship you, to praise you, to adore you, to walk with you, to talk with you, to, uh, Lord, spend time studying your word so we can know you better. And so, God, I pray that this time of, of Bible study would be encouraging and edifying, and it would help us to know you better. And it would help us, Lord, to have a deeper hunger for your word. And, God, that you would use it to just, to just mold us and make us further into the image of Christ. And we'll thank you and praise you for that grace. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. By the way, I'm Wade. Uh, I'm the pastor here. If you're visiting with us or new here and haven't, we haven't met before. Uh, and I, I lead on Wednesday nights, I lead just sort of an open Bible study uh, for anyone that shows up. That means even if you haven't been here in, in past weeks, you can get something out, out of it any week you show up. And so we've been walking through the Psalms, uh, taking them one chapter at a time. Tonight, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're taking two chapters, chapters 20 and 21 of the Psalms, because they go together. They're meant to be together. They're, they're put together on purpose, and they complement one another. We'll look at that in, in a few moments. Uh, but just before we read, just a summary of the Psalms. If, if someone asks you, hey, what are the, what are, what's the book of Psalms all about? This could be your answer. God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. And so if you read the Psalms, you will see clearly that God is worthy of our worship and praise. And God is worthy of our worship and praise and worthy of our trust in any and every circumstance that we face in this life. So hey, when times are good and you're on the mountaintop, God is worthy of praise and your trust. Amen? And when times are difficult and you're in the valley, God is worthy of your praise and your confidence. And so we want you to uh, remember that. That's what this psalm is all about. And Psalms 20 and 21 are about trusting in his name. And we're going to see that as we walk uh, through this. But let's, let's just begin by looking at Psalm 20. Psalm 20. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's a great verse. If you don't have it marked in your Bible, that's a great verse to mark. If you don't believe in marking in your Bible, then write it on an index card or something. But it's a great verse. Some trust in chariots, some in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. 
They collapse and fall, talking about chariots and horses and military might. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, now look at this, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Then look in chapter 21. To the choir master, Psalm of David. They've asked God to save the king. Look how it begins in verse 1. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. In your salvation, how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. We'll work through the rest of 21 as we go through this study. But notice in chapter 20, the people are asking for God to save and preserve the king. In chapter 21, they say, God, thank you for saving the king. So these two psalms uh, go together. And what I want to do tonight is I want to show you four ways to understand these psalms. Four ways, or maybe four perspectives, four angles to look at these psalms so that we can understand them rightly. There are four, uh, four ways that we should process these psalms uh, and think through them. So let me give you these four ways to understand Psalm 20 and Psalm 21. I think as I walk through them, you'll understand what I mean by that. First of all, these psalms are companions. They go together. So, for example, compare Psalm 20, verse 9, with Psalm 21, 1. Look what it says. O Lord, save the king. Psalm 20, verse 9. May he answer us when we call. So they're praying that God would save the king. Verse 21, verse 1. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices. In your salvation, how greatly he exalts. They pray for God to save the king. Chapter 21, they say, thank you, God, for saving the king. See how that goes together? Now compare chapter 20, verse 4, with 21, 2. Look in 20, verse 4. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. Then look in chapter 21, verse 2. You have given him his heart's desire. They have not withheld the request of his lips. So in chapter 20, they say, would you give the king his heart's desire? Would you give him victory? Chapter 21, they say, hey, Lord, thank you for giving him his heart's desire. They're meant to go together. And look in chapter 20, verse 7. We'll compare it with chapter 21, verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And look in chapter 21, verse 7. For the king trusts, not in horses and chariots, he trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. So I think you can see, just by just a cursory reading of these two psalms, that they're meant to go together. They're put t- together in the Psalter. That means the whole collection of the psalms. They're put there on purpose. They were written probably to, to be companions and they're put together in the Psalter so we can see them in that light. So we, we can't read 20 without thinking about 21. You can't read 21 without thinking about 20. And 20 makes more sense when you read 21 and 21 makes more sense when you read 20. Everybody got that? Okay, all right. So the, these Psalms are companions. They are, they are meant to go together. They're like, they're like peanut butter and chocolate. They're just meant to go together, right? Reese's Cups. Is there a better candy out there? Is there? I mean, is there peanut butter and chocolate? All right. Brother Bobby likes peanut butter and chocolate, right? All right, yeah, we had a conversation about that last week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, can, I just tell what you, can I just tell them what you did? It was it. <laughs> All right, so Miss Sarah made brownies, and, and, and Bobby told me that, uh, Bobby Clinton, if you're wondering, I want to embarrass him, but Bobby Clinton, right back there, Right back there, said, said right behind Karen, right there. Okay, um, he said the 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 brownie was real. 
you know, kind of gooey on the inside. You know, brown, I love brownies like that. And so for, for lunch, he got two pieces of bread with peanut butter on either side and put the brownie in the middle. And, I, and you know, my thought was, that's genius. That is genius. So anyway, peanut butter and chocolate, they're, they're meant to go together, right? They're meant to go together. So these psalms are meant to go together. Now, second thing about these psalms, these psalms are historical. The historical. They're dealing with a specific moment in history. So what moment in history? Well, we're not real sure. We know they're written by David, and we know that the people are praying for victory for the king. So this probably is a description of a time when David was actually the king, and he's going out to battle. So we don't know exactly uh, what, uh, what period of history these are dealing with, but both psalms are attributed to David. And we know they address a specific historical situation where God's people sought deliverance for their king, David, and their nation, and God granted that deliverance. All right? So we know it's some point of history that, that is about that. The king's going out to battle, the people are praying for deliverance, and God delivers the king and delivers Israel from enemies, right? So we don't know exactly what situation, but it could have been one like First uh, Chronicles chapter 14. Turn to First Chronicles with me. Now again, we don't know if this is the exact historical situation that David has in mind, but it's probably something similar to this, and it, it could have been this actual historical example. Look in First Chronicles chapter 14. Verse 8, it says, When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, you know the Philistines were constantly a thorn in David's side, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went out against them. Now the Philistines had come and made a raid in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of God, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to him, Go up and I will give them into your hand. And he went up to Baal-perazim, and David struck them down there. And David said, God has broken through my enemies by my hand like a bursting flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And they left their gods there, and David gave command, and they were burned. And the Philistines yet again made a raid in the valley. And when David again inquired of God, God said to him, You shall not go up after them. Go around and come against them opposite the balsam trees. I love this verse. Very interesting. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then go out for battle, for God has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. Isn't that something? So look what happens next. And David did as God commanded him. He struck down the Philistine army from Gibeon to Gezer, and the fame of David went out into all the lands. Why? The Lord brought the fear of him upon all the nations. So here are God's battle instructions for David and his army. Hey, go up close to the, the Philistines, but don't do anything until you hear the sound of warriors marching on top of the trees. What's all that about? Well, I mean, it's the angel army, right? It's all it could be. It's the, it's, the, it's the angel army of God. And he said, hey, when you hear the angel army marching on top of the trees, then you know, hey, I've started the fight, and you're going to win, so you go and get in the fight yourself. And it's, it's, a, it's a fixed deal. You're going to win the battle. That's exactly what happens. David gets his army close to the Philistines. They hear the, the marching on top of the trees. They attack. They have a great victory. Why? God gave them that victory. So it could have been something like that. Maybe David's reflecting on that great victory of the Philistines. And that's when he writes Psalm 20 and Psalm 21, reflecting on the time that the people prayed for the king to have victory over his enemies. And God 
granted that prayer, granted that request, gave them victory over the enemy. So these psalms are historical. One writer I read said that, that Psalm 20 and 21 as well, it's basically like an Israeli national anthem. How many of you know the name of the national anthem for Great Britain? What's it called? God Save, God Save the King, or now it's God Save the Queen. That's the, that's the national anthem. And, and if, you, I mean, if you watch, a, if, you, if you see them win a gold medal in the Olympics, they'll get up on a, a, a podium and you'll hear God Save the Queen. Well, this is, Psalm 20 is Israel saying, God Save the King. This is a nationalistic pride, uh, it's, it's patriotic fervor, our king's going out to battle, would you give him victory? By the way, I, I believe patriotism is a, is a biblical ideal. I mean, you see it in the Bible that there is this sense of where God has placed you as a place that you ought to be grateful for and want God's best for and, 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 and ought, to, ought to be proud of. And, and that's what's happening here in Psalm 20. And so these psalms are historical, all right? We don't know exactly what story uh, of deliverance God is, uh, David's referring to when he wrote Psalm 20, uh, but uh, it may have been something like 1 Chronicles chapter 14. So they are definitely dealing with something historical. But these psalms are also instructive. It's not meant just to give us a history lesson. These psalms are instructive for our personal Christian lives. In other words, Psalm 20 and 21 help us to understand how to face battles. Okay? The king's going out for battle. The armies is about to face enemies, a battle. And so there's some principles we can learn from these psalms about how we should face battles because, like it or not, we all have to battle in life, don't we? I mean, there is very real warfare, there's spiritual warfare. There, there are enemies that come against us. We must learn to face battles the same way that we see the people and the king face battles in Psalm chapter 20. So, how do we face battles? When, when we have an enemy that comes against us, how are we to face those battles? Number one, with fervent prayer. With fervent prayer. I really like the story of Hezekiah. You know, he's the king of Judah, and the Assyrian army comes up against him, Sennacherib's army, and there are uh, tens of thousands of them, and they're about to just overthrow Jerusalem. And Hezekiah doesn't know what to do. Uh, Sennacherib, through one of his messengers, sends this letter saying, hey, you, you need to surrender now or die, basically. And so Hezekiah takes the letter. He's facing an enemy, a very real enemy. He takes the letter into the temple... And he lays it before God and says, God, can you do something with this? I don't know what to do. Which is the exact uh, right response when you're facing an enemy. You ought to take it to God. And here in Psalm 20, the people take it to God. Look what it says there in verse 1 of chapter 20. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Talking to their king. May he help you... May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt offerings, Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire 
and fulfill all your plans. Look in verse 9. Oh Lord, they're praying here specifically to God. Oh Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. So they are praying that God would give them a victory in the battle, right? So when you are facing a battle, the first place you ought to go is into the presence of God, seeking the face of God, asking Him for His help. Because God never intended for you to fight battles alone. He never never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He's with you. And He wants you to come to Him with your needs. And so we face battles with fervent prayer. With fervent prayer. That's what they do here in Psalm 20. Also... We face battles with a realization that God is on our side. We want to remember that if we're a child of God, He is on our side. Look in verse 1. May the Lord answer you, chapter 20, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Now look at this next phrase. May the name, everyone say name. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Look what it says in verse 5. May we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name, everyone say name. In the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Look in verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the, what? Name of the Lord our God. So there is this, this realization that as they call out to God, they are calling on His name, identifying with His name. Now, why is this a big deal? Why is a, a mention of God's name a big deal, specifically related to prayer and specifically related to facing battles in life? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons. First of all, the mention of God's name was a reminder that they were God's chosen people. Okay, When they mention God's name, they were reminding themselves, hey, we are God's people. Uh, hold your place. Turn to the book of Numbers. It's the third book of the Bible, Genesis, X, or fourth, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Look in Numbers chapter 6. I want to see this prayer that Aaron prayed over the people of Israel. He blessed them. He blessed the Hebrew people. Beautiful passage. Look in Numbers 6 verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel and you shall say to them. Here's the blessing God wanted pronounced over his people. The Lord, and notice that's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which means that's the divine name of God, the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush, the name he's most often identified with, uh, sometimes pronounced Yahweh. We're not exactly sure that's how it's pronounced, but that is a common pronunciation that you will see. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Hey, by the way, have you, ever, have you ever found it difficult to pray for other folks? Like, how do I pray for them? Like, you know, how do I pray for somebody else? Just pray those words over their life. That's a good place to start, isn't it? The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now look in verse 27. So, when they say this blessing, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. This, bl- this blessing over the people is a way to say, hey, you are under my name. You are my people. It's God's way of saying, you belong to me. And every time you identify with my name, you are reminding yourselves, you belong to me. Do you think that's maybe the reason that we are encouraged in the New Testament as we pray to pray in the name of Jesus? 
Because every time we pray in his name, we are identifying with our Savior. It's a reminder that, hey, we belong to him, right? He's our Lord. He's our King. We belong to Jesus. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. And so they're mentioning the name over in Psalm 20 because it's a reminder that they were God's chosen people. Secondly, the mention of God's name was a reminder that God would act on their behalf. Look over in 2 Chronicles chapter 14. 2 Chronicles chapter 14. I'm reading through 1 Chronicles right now. Just about to start 2 Chronicles in my, in my own personal Bible reading. And 1 and 2 Chronicles, just to be real honest with you, they're history books. And there's a lot of details in there. And you, and you start reading and you kind of get bogged down. Like there's lists. Like for example, I was reading this morning list of gatekeepers that kept the gates at the temple. And it goes name upon name upon name upon name. And if you're not careful, you can kind of just get kind of um, glassy-eyed and just kind of kind of read through it in a, in a kind of a mechanical way. But I'm telling you, there are these little, there are these little stories throughout 1st and 2nd Chronicles that are just powerful. They're really, really good. Look what it says in 2nd Chronicles chapter 14. Look in verse 11. This is about King Asa, king of Judah. And it says, um, verse 11, we'll back up to verse uh, 9. That gives you context. Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against them, Asa and his people, the Israelites, with an army of a million men. It's a lot of folks, isn't it? A million people. A million folks. And 300 chariots, and came as far as Merishah. And Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up at their lines of battle at Zephatah Zeph- 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 at Merishah. Again, if you say names fast, people think you know what you're saying, all right? I slowed down a little bit. I need to say it faster. And Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. Now look at this next phrase. And in your name we have come against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asim, before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Say, wait, how did God defeat the Ethiopians? We don't know the details, but he did it. All right? And they knew God was doing it. Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar, and the Ethiopians fell until none remained alive. One million. For they were broken before the Lord and his army. The men of Judah carried away very much spoil. And they attacked all the cities of Gerar, for the fear of the Lord was upon them. And so notice there, as Asa is praying, saying, In your name we have come against this multitude. God, we know that if we're going to have victory, you need to act on our behalf. And when you pray in the Lord's name, you're saying, God, I can't do it. I need you to act on my behalf. That's why we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. I love this quote from Leon Morris. Is this in your notes? I have, I'll leave that quote in there for you. Is there a quote? Okay, good. Good quote. He writes, The name meant much more to people of antiquity than it does to us. For us it is a convenient label whereby we distinguish one person from another. The name for us is a matter of indifference. Not so in the ancient world. There it stood for the whole personality. When the psalmist spoke of loving the name of God, Psalm 511, or when he prayed, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you, Psalm 20, which we're studying tonight, he did not have in mind simply the uttering of the name. He was speaking of all that God means. 
the name in some way expressed the whole person. So when you say God's name, you're saying God. His name represents who he is in totality. And, and so when they call on God's name, they're calling on God himself. And so by invoking God's name in their prayer in Psalm 20, they are reminding themselves, hey, God is on our side. He's our God. We are his people. But also, how do we face battles? With fervent prayer, with the realization that he's on our side. And third, with confidence in God's power, not our own. Now look back in Psalm 20, verse 7. This is the the money verse, if you will, of Psalm 20. It's the, it's the takeaway. I mean, this is a great verse. You need to highlight it in your Bible. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. He's saying the people we're fighting against, maybe the Philistines, maybe some other foreign army or invader. They're trusting in their military might, their military power, their resources, but we know we're going to win because we trust in you. I want to say something that's very, very important. When we place our trust in something or someone other than God, it is an offense to God. Matter of fact, if you read through the Old Testament, when his people trust in you know, Pharaoh or Egypt or some other, or have an alliance with Syria or something like that, God gets angry. I mean, he gets angry when they trust someone else other than him. God is honored when we trust him. He's honored when we come to him with our needs. He's, he's honored when, um, when, when we when we place our cares and concerns before him, we're, he's honored when we say, God, we're not trusting in other things or other people. We're trusting in you. You're the one that can help us. I mean, let's just say as, as a parent, one of your kids comes to you and says, I have this issue in life that I, I really need some, some guidance and counsel on, so I'm going to go two doors down to the neighbor and talk to the parents down there. How would that make you feel, Right? I don't think you can help me, Dad. I don't think you can help me, Mom. That would be offensive, wouldn't it, right? That would be offensive. You know, uh, I, played, uh, I, I played soccer uh, in, in my days growing up and all that. And so one of my sons came to me and said, Hey, Dad, I really want to learn to play soccer. So uh, I've signed up for some lessons from, uh, from a gentleman in South Haven. I'd be like, well, I, you know, I, I can help you. Why wouldn't you come to me for help, right? And, and, and that's how God feels when we have a, a, a need in life, a concern in life, a battle in life, a hardship in life, an obstacle in life, a challenge in life, and instead of going to Him and saying, God, help me, we try to find help somewhere else. That is an offense to God. He's the one we ought to go to. Amen? And hey, by the way, you cannot just apply, you can apply this more than just individually. You can apply it corporately to a body of believers. A lot of times in, in church life, you can begin to trust in other things other than the Spirit of God, right? Trust in your plans or your programs or your facilities or your resources or, or all these different things. And, and instead of, it can be very subtle, instead of trusting in God, you think, well, we got it figured out. We're doing it the right way. And, and we're going to grow because we know what we're doing or we're doing it this way or that way or we're changing this or doing this. Listen to me. If anything good happens at any local church, it's God's grace. And if we're going to do anything that expands God's kingdom and makes an eternal difference for the glory of God's name, it's going to be God that does it, right? 
So we never want to shift our dependence from God and His wisdom and His grace and His power to plans or programs or strategies or those sorts of things. Uh, we, we want to maintain our trust ultimately in the Lord. And so these psalms are instructive. When you find yourself in a, in a tight spot, you need to go to God and place your confidence in Him, not your own strength. So these psalms are, are companions. They are historical They are instructive. But fourth and last, these psalms are messianic. Messianic. Which is a fancy way of saying they're about the Messiah. They're messianic. So wait, how are these psalms messianic? How how are these about Jesus? Hey, before we get there, just a reminder, the entire Bible points to Jesus. Don't bind this lie that, that, uh, you know, the Bible presents one kind of God in the Old Testament, and he's a lot different in the New Testament. The entire Bible is about Jesus. It all points to him. Do you remember when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with two disciples? They didn't know it was him. It was after his resurrection, but they, they'd heard he was resurrected but weren't quite sure. So they're walking along, and the Bible says that Jesus began to talk to them about the Old Testament, Moses and the law, and he shared with them the, all the things concerning himself. And over in John chapter 5, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. And he says this. He says, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. You think because you know the Bible, you're going to heaven. Hey, 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 quick side note real quick. Knowing your Bible doesn't get you into heaven. There are people that know their Bibles that are going to hell. You understand that? We get, when we stand before God one day, he's going to say, hey, here's the Bible quiz for you. Who was Ahab's wife? Whether or not you get to heaven is not based upon Bible knowledge. It's based upon what you do with Jesus. Right? He's the way. He's truth. He's life. Now, the Bible's important, of course. But, but just knowing the Bible doesn't save you. I think some people think that, that, uh, that they, uh, they know the Bible, that they must be okay. Right? I've seen people before, they love preaching. They love to hear good preachers. And they're as mean as a snake. Really? They just love preaching. There's a man, they want to, there's a pre, they want to hear that preaching, but they're mean. They they love, you know, they love hearing about the Bible, but they're not really interested in in letting the Bible shape their heart and life, right? And so, um, I don't know how I got off on that. What was I talking about? Um, what was I just talking about? What's that? Y'all, I don't know. I wasn't listening. Y'all weren't listening. Uh, oh. So John chapter 5, I'm back to John chapter 5. It's encouraging that y'all had no idea what I was talking about. Um, John chapter 5, Jesus says, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. Then he says, But these, the scriptures, testify of me. They're about me. They're all about me. And of course, at that time, all they had was the Old Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. So the entire Bible points to Jesus Christ. And that's true of these psalms. These psalms are messianic. How are they messianic? You didn't see the name of Jesus mentioned. So how does this point us to Jesus? Well, these psalms are messianic because they speak of God's preservation of the lineage of David. 21.1 O Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices in your salvation, how greatly he exalts. So you, we prayed for you to save the king, who's David. You saved the king. You preserved the line of David. And they say, wait, why is this a big deal? Well, 
Over in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, God told David, through your descendants, I'm going to send a forever king, a king who reigns forever. Wasn't talking about Solomon. Solomon's dead and gone. Wasn't talking about any of those kings that you read about in 1 Kings or 2 Kings or 1 Chronicles or 2 Chronicles. He was talking about a king that would come through David's lineage who would be the king of kings. He's talking about Jesus Christ, right? So God promised to David, I will send a forever king, a king of kings, through your lineage. That's why Matthew 1 1 is such a big deal. Turn to Matthew 1 1. Hold your place, but turn to Matthew 1 1. Right before the genealogy where we see that David came, or I'm sorry, Jesus came through the lineage of David. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. First verse of the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Look what it says. The son of David, the son of Abraham. So, so Jesus coming from heaven to earth fulfills the promise God made to Abraham to bless all the peoples of the earth. And it fulfilled the promise God made to David to send through his lineage a king who would reign forever and ever. Right? That's why he calls him son of David, son of Abraham. And so here's what's at stake in chapter 20 and 21 of the Psalms. If God did not preserve David, if God allowed David and his seed to be wiped out, which happened, by the way, all the time in ancient times. I mean, when one nation defeated another nation, they would kill the king and all his kids and his grandkids and cousins and nieces and nephews. I mean, they would wipe out the entire family because they didn't want anyone rising up to try to take the throne. So here's what's at stake. If God did not preserve David in his lineage, he could not keep his promise that he made to David. If there was not a, a, a lineage of David that, that stayed, in, uh, stayed intact, if God did not preserve that lineage, then he could not send the Messiah, listen, to die on the cross for our sins. That's what's at stake in Psalm 20 and 21. It's not just, hey, God saved the king, you know. Not just, it's not just patriotism. What's at stake here is the covenant that God made with David to send a Messiah. So by virtue of the fact that God answers their prayer in Psalm 20 and saves the king, as we see in Psalm 21, we see God is doing a work of preservation to keep his promises, to send Jesus to die for you and for me. Isn't that cool? So in that sense, this psalm is messianic. Also, these psalms are messianic because they seem to point to a greater king. A greater king. It's talking about King David, but there's some stuff in there that seems to think, okay, maybe he's talking starting with David, but he's, he's looking at a king down the line who's going to be a greater king than David. For example, look in chapter 21, verse 4. They're talking about God answering the king's prayers. Saying to the Lord, he, the king, asked life of you. Talking about God. You, God, gave it to him, the king. Length of days, forever and ever. Hey, David died, didn't he? David, he died a physical death. And he, he was buried in the ground. Who's this king that God gives life to forever and ever? He's speaking of Jesus. And, and, and even more specifically, I believe he's speaking of the resurrection. After Jesus Christ died on the cross, he was buried. God brought him from the grave, brought him from the dead. Jesus Christ stepped out of his tomb, alive forevermore. I believe that's what's being referred to in this verse. So, so Psalm 20, 21, start with King David in a time in history, but, but it begins to sort of look beyond David to a greater king. 
or, or David's sort of a picture of a coming king who will be greater than even King David. Now, scholars call this, um, uh, call this telescopic prophecy. What they mean by that is, say you're looking at, at Psalm 20 through a, a, a telescope, and, and, and you look beyond Psalm 20 to what Psalm 20 is referring to way down in the future in Psalm 21. So telescopically, it starts with David, but, but it's helping us to see beyond David to the greater king. Does that make sense? And so this, this psalm is messianic because, or these psalms are messianic because they were, seem to point to a greater king, King Jesus. Third, these psalms, this is where it gets really good, all right? I'm going to keep it under control for this last point. But you just need to understand I'm very excited about this last point, okay? So I'm going to be very measured in my comments. These psalms are messianic because they could be applied to the warrior Messiah, Jesus Christ. They could be applied to the warrior Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now again, historically they're talking about David going out to battle. All right, so That's the starting point. But they could foreshadow or be a picture of another king going out for battle. All right. Now there are two times that Jesus, the king of kings, there are two times that we see him going out for battle. Okay? I want to show you these two times. The first time is when he leaves heaven to come to earth. That's called the incarnation. Turn over to Revelation chapter, chapter 12. Because you, know, you say, wait, incarnation, birth of Jesus, that wasn't a battle. I mean, that was silent night, holy night, and you know, away in a manger, and there's this, you know, stars in the sky, and shepherds in the field. That wasn't a battle. Well, I want you to see the incarnation from a cosmic perspective. I want you to see what was going on in the spiritual realm when Jesus left heaven and came to earth. Look in Revelation chapter 12 with me. Are you interested? All right. Revelation chapter 12, I'll get there. It says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying on her birth pains and the agony and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. Now, I don't have time to go into all the... You're saying, oh, Revelation, here we go. Uh, I'm trying to get real deep into this, but, but basically I believe the woman represents Israel through whom Jesus uh, came physically, the physical lineage. He came through the Hebrews, okay? came through... Israelites, and I believe the dragon represents the enemy. It represents Satan. Is everybody with me so far? So we've got Israel, all right, this, this, that, that God has ordained to send us to give birth to a Messiah, okay? And we got the dragon. So what happens next? This great red dragon, seven heads, ten horns. On his heads were seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth, okay? Uh, most scholars believe that refers to Satan's fall. Remember, he was an angel. His name was Lucifer, and he rebelled against God uh, because he wanted to be higher than God. He wanted the praise that only God deserves. And so God threw him out of heaven. But these verses indicate that when Satan was thrown out of heaven, he took a third of the angels with him. And those angels are now fallen angels, and we would call them demons. Is everybody with me so far? All right. So we're talking about Satan and his demons. It says, The dragon, verse 4, stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Isn't that interesting? She gave birth to a male child. One 
who is to rule all the nations. Who's that talking about? Who? Jesus, rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where she was, had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. There's a lot of symbolism there. But basically, here's what these verses say. Satan wanted to destroy the seed of Israel. He wanted to destroy the one sent through the Hebrew people. His name is Jesus. You remember what happened right after Jesus Christ was born? Remember Herod? Herod heard that from these astrologer wise men that they had been looking at the, 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 uh, the stars. They'd been reading some ancient manuscripts. They probably had a copy of the Hebrew Bible. And they believed that the Messiah that the Hebrew Bible spoke of had come to earth. And they gave Herod some information. So Herod starts thinking, and Herod was a wicked man. Herod starts thinking, oh, a, a possible rival to my throne. And because he talked about the times that the... Uh, wise men had begun to discover these things. He said, just to be safe, we need to make sure we kill every child in Bethlehem, two years old and younger. And he carries out that awful, awful sentence. And, and, and he sends soldiers in, and they kill every child in Bethlehem, two years old and younger, to try to um, eliminate a rival to his throne. But what had God done? God had appeared to Joseph in a dream, said, hey, you need to get out of town, go to Egypt. And so God delivers Jesus from Herod, but really cosmically, he's delivering him from the enemy, Satan himself. That's what, that's what Revelation 12 is about. Isn't that interesting? If you keep reading Revelation chapter 12, Satan didn't get what he wanted. Jesus came, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead. G, uh, Satan's a defeated foe. And so look what it says at the end of chapter 12. This is extra, okay? Look at the end of chapter 12, verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times, half a time. That's God's provi- or, uh, protection, provision for Israel. Hey, have you noticed through human history, people have tried to wipe out the Jews? But God continues to preserve them and protect them, all right? It says, The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away like a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth. It's all symbolic language. Swallowed the river that the dragon had poured in from his mouth. So Satan wanted to destroy Israel. God didn't allow it to happen. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those, who's her offspring? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's us. And he stood on the sand and said, you know what that means? When Satan could not destroy Jesus and stop his saving mission, Satan threw a fit. And that's what he's doing right now in the world. He's throwing a fit against God's people, against you. You wonder what's going on in our world today? Terrorism and and unrest in our nation and, and natural disasters and and all these viruses and all, the evil that's going on out there. You, know, you got, you got uh, Vladimir Putin in Russia that just uh, ruled that's illegal to proselytize for Christians, and so persecution's coming 